This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, the FAA is giving drone pilots a bit of a break on remote ID. And speaking of the FAA, President Biden nominates pilot Michael Whitaker for the FAA administrator position. Also, Pipistrel keeps up with innovation flying a liquid hydrogen demonstrator. Speaking of innovation, Ian, there's a Cirrus trainer in the works. Finally, we're going to cover a couple of accidents that uh, everybody's been talking about and lots of lessons to learn from those. Ian, are you ready to do some hangar talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterpack final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest is Toto Marchin. He's a, um, what, a CFII that you met yep. who, um, boy, the guy has the worst luck. Most people go an entire flying career without ever having an engine out. He had two in a fairly short time. Two in a very short time, Ian. And listen, these were engine outs upon takeoff. So Toto was yeah, at worst case. low altitudes. And he has, a, he has a lot of interesting information for us that regular pilots such as myself can glean from his two emergencies, one in a high wing and one in a low wing. Okay, cool. So we look forward to that in a little bit. First, let's talk about the news. Remote ID for drones. Now, David, I know you're a 107 pilot. We have lots on staff here at AOPA. So this is something that uh, not only do you have sort of a news interest in, but you you have a personal interest in this this idea that the FAA they have this final rule that just came out, remote drone ID. What they've said is they're going to give pilots a six month break on enforcement, and that's because I guess it, people are having a hard time complying. Exactly, Ian. And listen, this is kind of complicated. So I'm gonna I'm gonna make an attempt to boil this down for the the regular folks. I am a part 107 pilot. So I passed a test and I have a drone certificate, which looks just like a private pilot certificate, plastic car to keep in my wallet. Mm -hmm. So I am supposed to register myself and my drones with the remote ID system. And what does that mean? The best way to describe that, Ian, is that it is ADSB for your drone. Okay. If you are a part 107 pilot, that means you are commercial drone pilot. So you have to register yourself and your equipment. The problem for me is that I have a Mavic Air system that I inherited from Mike Pfizer, 
And it was one of the drones that initially had come out 2015 or something like that, 2016. It's a little bitty drone. It weighs less than 250 grams. And that's another key thing here for registration purposes. You're supposed to register anything 250 grams or over. This weighs 249 grams. But it is incapable of, as my understanding, it's incapable of being updated even with a third party, sort of like a chip that you would attach to your drone. Mm. Mm-hmm. So a lot of folks like me, um, are, they're, they're in the same boat. And we have uh, older equipment that we've been using that we're comfortable with. We've got spare batteries, we've got blades, we've got you know, extra you know, safety features on these drones. I've already registered my drones with the FAA, by the way, uh, because I am a commercial drone pilot. But I'm not going to be able to fly that Mavic Air system any longer. So I'm taking it out of my camera bag and will probably donate it somewhere uh, to a school or something like that. But uh, this gets really complicated, Ian. Hmm. The bottom line, though, as you mentioned in the tease, is that the FAA has granted folks a six-month grace period as of September 16th. Okay. Okay. So I, I have questions here because, the, you know, I'm not in the drone world, as I've said many times. So 107 is commercial, right? So you work for AOPA, right. you do aerial photography, so you're using it for a commercial purpose. I don't use drones for a commercial purpose. So do I not need to register my drone if it's over 250 grams if I bought one? No. Okay. If you're flying recreationally and you're not a Part 107 pilot, and, you, and it weighs less than less than 250 grams. It's 249 grams. Say, for instance, Ian, you're going to buy the updated model to the the drone that I have, mm-hmm. and you wanted to um, you wanted to start flying. Uh, you couldn't fly a Mavic Air, but you could fly a DJI Mini Three, and that is ironically at price the same as the Mavic Air system was priced mm. basically when it came out or you know, similar enough. It weighs less than 250 grams. And if you're flying recreationally and you're flying anywhere, you know, that, that you're capable to fly without interfering on in other airspace, then no, you do not need to have that remote ID for you since you are not a registered drone pilot. Okay. But if I buy a bigger drone one that's uh-huh. over 250 grams, I am going to have remote ID? It's my understanding that you will have to have remote ID on something that weighs more than 249 grams, and it's going to either be built in. Mm-hmm. Ian, everything after uh, everything that was manufactured after a certain date has that capability built in. The drones that are being sold right now have the capability of that built into their drone software and firmware. Yeah. Or you, if you have a slightly older drone, let's say I'm just going to ballpark it, just going back a year or two, yeah. there is a lo- high likelihood that firmware could update that drone and you would not have to buy a new one. Okay. But you got to keep in mind that it's there's a weight limit here, just like there's a weight limit for LSAs. Yeah. You know, right now, thir- what's 1,320 pounds unless right. it's an amphibian. And um, and you need to adhere to that. So it, it gets complicated. Hmm. So one thing I was looking at as we were talking about this is that there's there's like three ways to comply, right? There's the, like you said, there's built in, the drone comes with it. Then there's what I would consider the airplane equivalent of an aftermarket, something you can strap onto this thing. 
like a like I put a sky beacon on my tripacer for ADSB out. Yeah, same idea on a drone. Exactly. Yeah. But then there's a third, and it was interesting because in, in looking at some of the message boards, it seems like a th- this third option might be part of the sticking point and part of the reason for the delay for the FAA, and that is these essentially dr- a pre-approved drone flying areas. Now, I... Yeah, sure. Yeah. Like an RC pilot would fly remote control airplane at an RC field. That would be fine to fly a drone there. Yes. That's it. And that really surprised me because when I think of like a drone, a designated drone area, I'm thinking of these big areas the FAA has designated for like where they're where they're doing testing and research, right? Where people are flying like global hawks and they're doing unmanned optionally piloted aircraft testing and things like that. But no, these are there are hundreds of these around the country and a lot of them are these RC fields. Yeah. So somebody said, and I don't I can't verify the numbers, but they're they're I don't know, something like 800 applications to the FAA, and they just don't have the manpower to keep up with these applications and to get these places approved. Oh, I'm sure. And so if they don't approve these in time and the six-month runs out, all of these drone, all of these RC fields are are cooked. I mean, it's just going to kill them. Well, that that's something I didn't think about, Ian, and that's a good point. And I want to add, I want to tack on to that, Ian. Don't forget, there is a pretty good, you know, community of drone racing. Mm. You know, that yeah. is kind of exciting. Yeah. And um, most of it's indoors, but not always. And that would be, I would think, uh, organizers of a drone racing club would have already petitioned the FAA, you know, to say, hey, this is our field. This is where we fly drones and we race around, you yeah. know, pylons. And yeah. this is what we do. And by the way, I'm going to convert 249 grams to pounds, and it's it's about a half a pound. Okay. Well, it's small. I will say, I, I do think, just to, to put this one to bed, I do think for manned flying, this rule could be important because I'll give you a great example. My house, right? We just bought a house. It's in an inside a restricted area, uh-huh. and I'm just thinking about this as we're talking. There, there were drone photos of the house. Oh, right. Sure. I would bet you... A hundred bucks, that real estate agent does not have a 107 certificate and did not operate that flight legally in, inside this restricted area. Well, you might have a point, but don't forget, you can, uh, with the LANT system, you can also, in essence, it's a, it's a short-term petition to fly near restricted airspace. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I say restricted, it's it, to fly near airports. Yeah. And that is a charted uh, thing, an FAA uh, the FAA, if you're granted that temporary option, it'll be a notum on the yeah. local airport. You know, b- uh, drone activity at and below 400 feet at, you know, this radial yeah. from that place or whatever. So, but you're right. Uh, and that's something that real estate agents probably want to think about, too. They, they, they're Photo geeks need to be compliant with this yes, remote ID because that's a money-making operation. Yeah. Hey, you know, you said we're going to put it to bed, but I want to just – I'm going to throw a couple things out real quick before we move on to, to – we're going to call them full-size aircraft. But there are a bunch of, of these drones that you can update. I mean, it's there's a ton out there that are fine to fly with either the remote ID already built in, or you can buy a module and stick it on top of it. DJI Air 3, the Mavic 3 Pro, and the Inspire 3, which is a real popular one for movie makers, the Air 2S, the Mavic 3, and it goes on and on. So there are there are probably 20 or so, especially DJI drones, 
that are available with the technology already built in or firmware updates, or you could put a remote ID module on it like you would a tail beacon or a sky beacon to a full-size aircraft. And we'll be right back. Michael Whitaker, we've, we teased because the, the scuttlebutt was this was going to happen. We teased this a couple months ago. Now it's official. The, the White House has nominated Michael Whitaker, former uh, deputy administrator, to the FAA administrator position. And overall, just I think unanimous across the industry, respected guy, worked in the airline business. Um, he's worked for drone companies. He, ha- he is a GA pilot. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think just a really well-liked guy, respected guy, like I said. He's been nominated, and I think uh, this should go through pretty quickly. Hopefully, fingers crossed, yeah. he will be our next administrator. I would hope so. Yeah, I would hope so, too. He also spent more than 30 years as a, a litigator, you know, so he understands the law side of this as well. And like you said, Ian, a private pilot, with some advanced air mobility background, which would allow him to be more forward-thinking than other folks and would probably be a good fit to the story that we just were talking about, you know, trying to slide these drones into our, you know, our airspace systems with a little bit more fluidity. Mm-hmm. So I think, he, I think he will have a good look at that. He's got, like you said, a lot of experience in the commercial airline world as well. He was uh, the group CEO of one of India's, well, India's largest travel conglomerate. So he's got a successful commercial aviation background to some degree as well. So that's very, very good to have someone that's looking out for the FAA in a bunch of different directions. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So moving on to Pipistrel. We love the cool stuff Pipistrel does. They do a lot of it under the radar, talk about it only after it's happened. And that includes this newest flight, which is the first manned liquid hydrogen flight over in Slovenia about a week ago, I think, maybe two weeks ago. And don't forget, Pipistrel is a Textron subsidiary, and Textron bought Pipistrel because of their advanced uh, engine designs that were Mm non-traditional. Hydrogen is one of them. Electric is another. And so rather than redevelop their or develop their own, Textron bought Pipistrel. So um, have you taken a look at that at that aircraft that flew in Slovenia with that hydrogen-powered electric motor. Yeah, it's um, it's a twin boom. Uh-huh. I think it's developed off their their record-setting glider. Actually, it looks like, and uh, it's unfortunately the worst part about the video is they put out this video. So, like, you can see that it's a single engine. It looks like a pretty uneventful flight. I just wanted to be able to hear it, though. It's like, I don't know, they were standing yeah. next to a jet with its APU on or something. and um, Right. It was pretty... Yeah. It's it was like, loud, but it wasn't the signature of the of the electric motor, yeah, which that's right. we, we have high hopes for electric motors to be somewhat more quiet mm-hmm. than traditional you know combustion yeah. engines. So we got to give props to Avweb. They uh, published the story, had the video, and I always love this, just the comments. Did you go through the comments section? I did not go through the comments. You like to go through the comments. So, yeah, and inform us on what you found, Ian. I found that everybody who reads AvWeb is a— um, They're opinionated. A future a future fuels expert. Sure Let's they put are. It that way. Yes. There were 75 comments about this, very few about the actual aircraft, most of them about uh, arguing about hydrogen and how it's a waste of energy— it's volatile, uh, how it's a bad idea. You got you to cool then, it to minus 423 degrees Fahrenheit, which I don't, I'm not yeah. sure which specialist uh, indicated that in the comments, but. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, they talk about how there is no such thing as green hydrogen. It takes fossil fuels to make it. Oh, okay. All this stuff. So, you know, it's, it's, and then, you know, of course, the rebuttals, oh, they're using solar to be able to do that. And so, um, yes, people are very passionate about this. I will say, I think anytime, you know, we'll work through some of those details. It's just exciting to see some sort of advancement beyond yeah. fossil fuels. It's, I think that's exciting, whether it's electric or unleaded, maybe even as a, as a good step in the right direction. So, yeah, it's, um, it's entertaining. And having hydrogen power the electric motor is different. I mean, you've you've written a story. Uh, I thought you wrote a story a while back, Ian, about a, a, a conventional twin that was powered by hydrogen. I thought you wrote something like that. Well, they've got the one in, well, I guess they're based kind of dual in, in the U.S. and in Britain. It's a single. Okay. But they were doing all these sort of technology demonstrators, and they were flying it on just the electric, then with the hydrogen tank. I think there's they're going for maybe the not liquid version. I can't remember exactly what kind of hydrogen they're using. But yeah, this um, this was apparently the first manned flight to do that. It was there were two two pilots on board. Yeah. So yeah, it's um it's it's pretty cool stuff. And the fact that it comes from such a small company is pretty outstanding. Well interesting. And as you like to say, moving on. Yes, to Cirrus, who surprised all of us and completely unannounced, unbeknownst to anybody, has built a new airplane and gotten it certified. Yeah, and we also need to, uh, again, give some props to uh, Paul Birdrelli. We want to get him on here at some point yeah. as a Hangar Talk guest. I talked to him about that at Sun and Fun. He said he would do it. But Paul wrote a, a, a short story about a Rotex-powered Cirrus trainer that could one day fly. We're not sure. Let's just go over some of the details real quick. First of all, a reminder to our listeners, our Hangar Talk listeners, and uh, a quick shout out, by the way, if you don't mind, Ian, to George Farrington, who I met this weekend over at Aerogatno in Ottawa. Hmm. He's a loyal listener. But our Hangar Talk listeners are going to recall that Cirrus already has a trainer. Yes. And it's called the TRAC, the T-R-A-C. But also, Cirrus has a large Chinese investment that's pushing the Cirrus brand forward and has helped them do some R&D. So there's an interesting tie-in to the Chinese aviation market, which is still up and coming. Yeah. So I I think that we need to kind of take note of that. Yeah. So this is interesting because it is kind of what happened to Mooney. You remember they... They, uh, with Chinese investment, build this trainer that never really happened. And then, of course, the company went bust. Um, Cirrus, they injected a bunch of money, allowed the jet to get across the finish line, and at the same time have have worked on this SR-10, Rotex-powered, as you mentioned. How many seats is this one, Ian? This is key. Yeah, three seats, um, which, you know, makes some sense, right? Instructor, student, observer. Developed jointly, they say, uh, in the U.S. and by, uh, by Cirrus in China. And it, it was certified. They got the type certificate in April, but they're not planning on selling it, at least now, in the U.S. Interesting. And now, listen, uh, before we go further and people get their hopes up uh, real high, first of all, we don't know how much this is going to sell for, uh, if it ever does get sold in the U.S. But it's interesting. It's a Part 23-day VFR aircraft. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the type certificate, it is for day VFR flight. Yeah. That to me is interesting. The Rotex engine is cer- certainly a break from uh, Cirrus's uh, traditional Continental power plant, which is also, I think, has some Chinese investment in the Continental yeah, engine true. Very motor. True. But this aircraft would also have the signature parachute, mm-hmm. right? 
mm-hmm. and that means a lot to families who might have students that are using this for training. It's interesting, the wingspan's a little bit shorter than the SR-20 line. It's uh, about 35 feet, about three and a half feet shorter. And the, um, you know, the weight of the aircraft is, is pretty light. So that's uh, 2,150 pounds maximum gross weight. And you're going to compare that to about 3,050 pounds for the uh, SR-20. Yeah. So interesting. But now LSAs right now still have a 1,320-pound maximum. So this doesn't seem like it would, even with Mosaic, we would have to see other changes Yeah, maybe for this to be wrapped into that. Yeah. I mean, it's basically sort of Skyhawk size, right? 2150. Yeah, right. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. And like you mentioned, about 900 pounds lighter than the uh, SR-20, which I know Sierra sells as a trainer and universities certainly pick it up, but it's not yep. found a huge amount of acceptance in more traditional mom and pop flight schools. So I guess this is not unlike car makers, right, who uh, put out different cars for different markets around the world. You know, Ford sells different cars in Europe than they do the U.S., and maybe Cirrus is going to sell different airplanes in China than it does in in the U.S. So it's kind of an interesting interesting strategy. It is. It's a a pretty fast airplane, Ian, 139 knots maximum cruising speed. I kind of like that. Yeah. Heck, I'd buy it as a regular airplane. Right. You know, but but day VFR. So, you know, keep an eye on your your sunrise and sunset, you know, tables. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. So we want to unfortunately finish on kind of a sad note today, and that's with two accents. Let's talk first about Reno. Um, by now, no doubt you've heard about what happened there. Two T6s collided after the race, which is obviously highly unusual for them. Both pilots dying, uh, unfortunately. And it was two very, very experienced pilots, two former champions. That's Nick Macy. Chris, yeah. and cr- Well, Chris Rushing was a reigning champion of the North American T6 class. Four wins uh, under his belt. And I want to say that he might have crossed the finish line first. Yeah. And this was, this was on the cool-down lap, yep. Ian. Yep. So we don't know a whole lot about this accident yet. Richard McSpadden has done kind of a first look. It's great. Which, I yeah, encourage our, our uh, listeners to take a look at Richard's quick analysis of this. You know, and Richard always points out that this is what the NTSB might look at, mm-hmm. you know, and he's coached it with some uh, some good flight show, uh, aerobatic experience. I mean, Richard knows mm-hmm. what he's talking about. And so I think that the video is actually a very good piece. It is good. Yeah, he does a great job of obviously presenting the facts without going into a whole lot of wild speculation is really nice and and tries to bring it back because obviously this this accident doesn't have a whole lot of obvious implications for your, you know, you and I who are flying straight and level places. But he does actually do a good job of talking about kind of the pattern and how to stay safe there. And um, Well, he mentions the belly up mm-hmm. phenomena. And so I've been trying to practice that myself, Ian. And that means anytime you're operating and you know close to the runway environment and you make that turn where the belly of your airplane is kind of up and blocking your view, whether mm-hmm. it's to the right or to the left, you know, he says to take extra precautions and really survey the left and the right before you do that, which is uh, probably how we were all taught, but probably forgot a lot of that, you yeah. know, late, later after we built some hours. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it's also obviously incredibly sad because this is the last year at Reno. And so right. to end the races on, on such a note is just, uh, oh, it's awful. Hopefully they'll pick up next year at a new location. We don't know yet. They haven't announced. 
but not a good way to go out at Reno. And so, yeah, they um, unfortunately that that's that's how they're going to do it, though. And uh, so we'll just have to wait till next year to see if they can pick up somewhere else and and you know restart the tradition. And speaking of crashes, Ian, there was some interesting findings that came about. I think we could all take a lesson from this. Mm -hmm. Uh, The NTSB found that pilot distraction caused by a social media post contributed to a 2021 Cessna 182 crash during a radio tower strike in St. Louis, Michigan, not St. Louis, Missouri, but Michigan. Mm -hmm. And the 23-year-old pilot, uh, Slade Martin, was killed. This is interesting, Ian, because I think it's all too easy for us to look down at our iPad minis or our iPads uh, just for traffic, for instance, or anything else. Not just for the fact that this, yes, this was a social media post and that was, you know, I'm just going to say that's ridiculous to lose your life over, whether you're driving or flying or, or anything or crossing a parking lot, you know. But there are further implications of, of you looking down and look, and being really absorbed in uh, your electronics versus looking yeah. out at times. Yeah, that's a good point because I, I think, you know, people will read this, the NTSB, you know, actually citing the post as, as a cause for the accident and say, oh, it's a 23-year-old kid. What, you know, what was he thinking? Kids these days, you know, but it's like, no, you just can't discount the fact that we're all distracted, whether it's by our phone or iPad. You know, this is particularly, he should have been trained, obviously, as a pipeline patrol pilot to have his eyes outside at all times because you're flying at low level. But lots of people do fly low, even if they're not doing pipelines. The other thing is there's complacency, that type of a job where you're flying, you know, you're just droning along kind of straight and level for a long time, trying, right. trying to look outside. It's like this idea of complacency creeping in. I, I will say though that what's what I found kind of interesting about this is that 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 he posted 35 seconds before the accident, which yeah, it was within within a mile and a half of the of the guy wire yeah. for this tower, yeah. and and he was flying to the right of the pipeline, which I think is traditionally the way pipeline pilots do fly, yeah. so that you're in the left seat, you can see the pipeline. Yeah, and then he kind of crossed over um, and hit the tower on the when he was on the left side of the pipeline. But 35 seconds, you would think, is enough time. You know, it's like he posts, looks out. He saw the tower, apparently, because he was in a climb and a turn. seems like that'd be enough time to avoid it. But maybe it's like, okay, he posted and then, you know, looked around and see what else was going on in Snapchat or whatever. But, but David, I think that you made a great point there, which is, you know, you might not be posting on Snapchat or Facebook or Instagram, but you might be sitting there staring at your iPad or at your GPS or something else. And really, we need to be paying attention, you know, looking outside on autopilot or anything. Or shoot, or shooting a selfie of us in the yeah. cockpit like we probably all, all do. Everybody you know? does it, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, be extra vigilant. Do that when you're not under a high-stress environment, any kind of a deadline or any kind of a, you know, busy airspace. So I would advocate for doing it, you know, if you must uh, do it when it's uh, slow, quiet and easy going. Yeah. Not when you're flying low and near a pipeline and patrolling low to the ground with uh, obstacles all around you. Yeah. Yep. All right, David. So, hey, one guy who has avoided accidents twice now under really dire circumstances is Toto. Oh, yeah. He's got an incredible story to tell. Really glad that you guys met and, and you were able to capture what he has to tell because it's it's pretty incredible.
Toto Marchand, you are a CFI. You're based out of Warrington, Virginia. You fly a lot here in the Maryland, Virginia area around the Appalachians. And you've got a quite a unique story to tell. You're here to tell us about returning to the airfield after engine failure on takeoff. Correct. Tell me a little bit about what happened the first time that occurred. So the first time was, I think, in April, April 6th, if I remember correctly. I was in a 172, a 1961, if I remember correctly, a 172, a school plane, the school I contract for, uh, with a student, actually, who was going to solo that very hour. The run-up was fine. Everything was normal. There were no abnormal indications of any kind. We entered the runway. I was doing the pre-solo check, if you will, during which you test a couple of reactions and skills, one of them being pulling the power, beam the numbers, but also what I always do, I climb to 800 feet and I reduce the throttle and I see if they nose forward, right? That's the right response. So we take off, everything normal. We climb up to about, probably about 700 feet AGL. I reduce the throttle to gauge his reaction. He was flying and he does beautifully. He lowers the nose, attempts to add power, right? normal procedure for an engine failure after takeoff. And after like two seconds, I reintroduced power, told him to climb out, and we did for a few seconds. And then the engine quit. It quit for about a second or two, and then it came back online. But now the aircraft was vibrating violently, very violently. I had full power in. I was no longer able to sustain climb. I looked to my right. There is a manufacturing facility, and there's hangars. Ahead is a town called Midland, and I was not high enough to clear that. To my left are fields. So just instinctively, I push the nose down. I roll it on its side. We're at this point a very good glider, making about 1,400 RPM. You say roll it on its side about what was your angle of bank? Just guessing. Probably almost 60 degrees, I would okay. think. Probably maybe 50, 60 degrees. So when you bank that far, you're also losing altitude a little bit more rapidly. I am, yes, absolutely. When this happened, because it was so low, you know, the startle factor, which for me is, was quite short, uh, thankfully, and I really had no options, I felt like. If I was gonna do the, what we brief, what we teach, the standard below 1,000 feet AGL, we don't attempt to turn back, uh -huh. I would have probably made a field, but it wasn't a given. Like I said, there was a town and a manufacturing facility off my right. On the left side, all I was gonna hit was cows, so more survivable, I would say. Yeah. I start the turn, I radio Mayday, Squawk 7700 in the meantime, and turn back towards the runway. And we made the runway pretty good. It's actually a nice landing, if it wasn't for the fact that I drugged the left brake all the way down the runway. So <laughs> just out of sheer stress, right? That'll happen. That'll happen, yeah. So uh, we taxied off the runway. The tire was pretty close to being flat. And we taxied back to the hangar, to the mechanics hangar actually in this case. And my student, was suspiciously cool. He was like, so can we do my solo in the other 172 we have? And I said, no, I'm going home and I'm gonna hug my wife. <laughs> That's interesting. So you made it into almost a non-event mm -hmm. to the point where your student had that confidence to, to think, well, okay, we handled that. Let's go flying a little bit more. Mm -hmm. From your perspective, it's a once in a lifetime event, generally, Yep. right? Exactly. And how many hours do you have? Just over a thousand. And how long have you been instructing for? Uh, close to a year. Okay. And before we get into some other details, but you also have a, a, a variety of, uh, of things in your background besides aviation, hands-on aviation as a CFI. You have a little experience behind the microphone. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, so I, my start in aviation was because my parents were in the manufacturing industry. So as I, from being a little kid, I was walking around airplane factories. When I was 18, I wanted to go to the KLM Flight Academy because I'm originally from the Netherlands. And my parents said, you are going to college first. So what do you do? You study aerospace engineering because that has something to do with airplanes, okay. right? So I did that, went to law school, and then I got into air traffic control. And I did that for a few years. I was a private pilot at the time at a flying club, just flying recreationally. I did that for a few years. Uh, and then after that, I moved to the United States. So you had time as a European air traffic controller. Mm -hmm. So that allows you to understand a little bit about what is going on in, in a controller's mind, as well as to help you as you're teaching your students. You can see it from both perspectives. Yes, yes, exactly. And one valuable lesson uh, that day for me was, because you're mentioning the controller perspective, and I teach this now actually to people when I teach emergency operations, an ELT generally doesn't get you found. ELTs are a little bit like car alarms, if they're going off on an airport at least. If they go off in the Virginia mountains, the Civil Air Patrol will come out, right? But they're a little bit like car alarms. We're supposed to think, someone's stealing a car, call the police. What we think is, ah, there's an annoying alarm going off, can it stop? What gets you found is squawking 7700. That was a lesson from that day also, because I was barely off the runway and I get a call from the airport director, who I, I know uh, reasonably well, Dave Huss, and he says, hey, we have Potomac Tracon on the line. They saw a 7700, then they, two seconds later, you disappeared off radar, the state police are on the way. And that taught me that within a span of about 30 to 60 seconds, if you squawk that, and if you're that low where you disappear off radar, that generates extra attention, of course, right? Because it blinks red EM and then it goes away. <laughs> I mean, any controller would be, would be startled. The process at the Tracon apparently is so fast that they get emergency response out right away. That's a key takeaway mm -hmm. that, that other students and, and pilots and commercial pilots ought to keep in mind, squawking 7700 right after you declare Mayday. Yes, and when I was learning to fly, I was taught don't ever be afraid to declare an emergency. Just, just do it. And don't be afraid of the paperwork or the consequences because it'll all be okay, right? And as I was learning to fly, I knew that up here, but still you get into some situation, you ask yourself, is this really an emergency? Right. Like one time I flew into, at night, into unforecast convective weather, IFR, and we got in a pinch and I had to get out. And then even with you know, the, the stuff I know, I was asking myself, should I really? Is this really that severe? And then training kicked in and I said, of course it is. Do it immediately, right? All of a sudden, the controller is all yours. You get all this attention, you get out. Five minutes later, we were off the code, right? No paperwork, no nothing. So the lesson there that I give my students, even though I remember being in their position and learning about it but not really understanding it, is that 7700 will not necessarily lead to negative consequences on your license or paperwork or explanations to be given. It's a way to seek help and controllers are there to help you. That's a key takeaway that we really do need to remember. It's, you know, if there is a situation that uh, folks are unfamiliar with or they're feeling like they've lost control of situational awareness or mechanical issue or anything like that, don't hesitate to declare an emergency. Don't yep. hesitate to roll to 7700 on the transponder. Yep, absolutely. Excellent. You had an engine out in a, in a that was a Cessna 172. Mm -hmm. 
And one would think that's a once in a lifetime situation. As a fellow emergency engine out pilot myself, I was thinking I was one and done. Mm -hmm. However, was that the case for you, Toto? No, it wasn't. And you make an interesting point because this had a little bit of an effect on my private life. Because when I got home that day, I told my wife, statistically, these are so rare. I had mine, now I'm done. It won't happen again. And then barely two and a half months later, it happened again. And this was one that was a little more real and severe, if you ask me. Tell us about how that came down. And it was not in a 172 Cessna. No, it was in a different airplane, a Piper Warrior, 1972 or 74 Warrior, out of Stafford Airport, which is just down the road from Warrington. A good friend of mine who I'm working with on his IFR, he's almost there. We were flying his Warrior, going for a training flight to fly the approaches in Culpeper. Everything normal on the run-up again. We, it had just come out of annual, which mm -hmm. is also a little bit of a learning point, right? So we were a little bit extra vigilant, might you say, about it's just come out of annual, everything's been taken apart, put back together. So we briefed the departure potential emergencies a little more thoroughly. And something in me made me on edge. I don't know what it was, but I was not 100% comfortable. He was flying, normal takeoff. Uh, he was flying beautifully. He was on airspeed within a knot, you know, climb rate, everything. He did really well. And I remember looking to the right side, because I'm in the right seat, looking out. And at Stafford Airport on runway 33, once you leave the runway area, it's a bunch of rocky hills, sandy rocky hills. It's sort of, it's sort of rolling terrain, as yep. far as I remember. Yep. Yeah, and, and you're in the Appalachian, so it's not flat. Yeah, and then trees, right? With some pockets of houses in between. Yep. Uh, not many options. I was looking out my right, and I asked myself, if my engine quits, what do I do? Where do I go? And I said to myself, I don't know, I don't have any options really right now. And maybe I was looking at the gauges and everything was normal. Everything was totally fine. I was trying to reassure myself. And two seconds later, the engine quit. And it quit completely. No warning. No warning. Completely, suddenly, engine failure. Now, my student was flying. And the FAA teaches us about the startle factor and how that factors into reactions. And for some reason, I was nowhere near to three or four seconds. It was a lot faster. I grab the controls. I force the nose down. I roll it in 60 degree bank. Left side or right side? Left side, which is interesting. I did that on both, both occasions. And the recent podcast with Richard talked about, the guy talked about rolling left because he's in the left seat. I was in the right seat, but I rolled left instinctively. And trust me, when this happens, there is no thinking. No, there's no time to think. You gotta react yep. and quickly. And within about a second, I went from, this is not real, this is not happening to me, to, it is real, I'm going to die, to anger. And I think it was my anger that saved me that day. Because it's like, hey, this already happened one other time a couple of months ago, it's not supposed to be happening again. Yes, and I said, not today. Not, not right now, it's not my time, okay. right? So I took the controls, rolled it into the bank, and pulled. How high were you now? You were much lower on this one than you were on the first one, it sounded like. Yes, we were 480 feet above terrain. Okay. And the terrain is about 100 something feet higher than the runway. So I think my calculations were we were about 569, 570 feet above the runway threshold. The calculations would suggest you would not make it. Correct. Which is, I didn't know my altitude at the time. I was just trying to survive. You were just flying the airplane. Yeah, I was just flying the airplane. And when we got on the ground and I realized how low that was, I said to myself, we should not have made that. 
right? The, the previous one was about six, 700 feet AGL, which is, if you react quickly, if you take out the startle factor, you can do it. If you're proficient, you don't stall spin. Um, on this one, especially in a warrior, I don't know how I did it, but I did, and I rolled it in, and I pulled, which is not, which is kind of ill-advised, right? Because then it becomes a steep spiral. And our airspeed was about 100 miles an hour through this turn, and the stall warning was going off the whole time. Because you were at such a severe bank. Yep, exactly, load factor. So mm -hmm. I pull, but I felt like I had no choice. So I hear the stall warning. Of course, that adds to the stress of the situation. I roll out of the turn, and I see this rocky hill in front of me. And on top of that rocky hill is grass where the airport perimeter fence is located. And I was thinking to myself, I don't think I'm going to clear this. You must have been really tight to that, only a few feet above it. About 30 feet, I want okay. to say. And I pull back, and I feel the buffet start. And of course, we, you know, as students of aviation, we learn there's a stall warning if you're equipped, and then there is a buffet, and then the nose will drop. But once the buffet starts, you're pretty close. So I forced, with everything I had in me mentally, I forced myself to relax the back pressure. Buffet stopped, and we cleared the fence, and we made the runway. Did you actually push down or just relax back pressure? I just relaxed at that point. Um, we were still going pretty fast. I. I have the airspeeds from wind and GPS data. I don't remember looking at the airspeed indicator. I was really flying this airplane yeah. just by feel. My student didn't have the time to look at it either. He has no idea. He, he just realized what happened when we had already turned around. That's really when it came to him, what was going on. So I relaxed the back pressure, we cleared the fence, and we actually made the runway because we were going so fast. And I did a similar thing to the first time. When I rolled it into that bank, I gave a lot of left rudder initially. And throughout the turn, some of that left rudder was required to stay coordinated. As I rolled out from sheer stress, I forgot to let go of the left rudder. As soon as I did, the airplane got more glide, if you will, and we were able to progress onto the runway. What I realized later, you know, there, as you take lessons away from these experiences, I think you always have to ask yourself not just how did I make that, but what did I do wrong? Because uh -huh. for me, twice now, in, in two and a half months, I've had this happen, and twice I've had the same instinctual reaction, and I've, had, I've asked myself questions, are those instinctual reactions correct? Is this something I should be reacting to in this way, and I should be teaching to others? Right. Um, that's a whole other topic. And um, I think we were very, very, very close to a stall spin, right there at the end of that turn when we pulled up. Because pulling up, coming out of an accelerated almost stall uh -huh. with significant rudder deflection is exactly what we all learn will, you know, could cause an airplane to roll upside. But you had, you had airspeed on your side. I did, yes. But I flew that airplane to the edge of its envelope, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I think I got all about out of it what it could do. When you landed that time, uh, left brake on rollout or no, or no? No, no, none of that. I did manage to declare an emergency on the CTAP in the turn. Uh, there was nobody there, thankfully. The first occasion, there was a collision um, concern also with another airplane coming into land on this. The second one, this most recent one, we had the runway to ourselves. Um, I didn't drag the brakes or anything. When we were over the runway, the engine stopped at that point. It was windmilling, and then it, it finally quit turning. The prop quit turning, and we even managed to roll off the runway, if you will. Called for a tow. Did not manage to squawk 7700 on this one. What happened really quick this time? 
Yes. You're much lower to the, to the deck. Yeah, it was about, if I remember correctly, about 23 or 25 seconds from the engine quitting to being on the runway. That's amazing. Now, uh, what was the culprit in this occasion in the, in the Warrior? So the Warrior, like I said, had just come out of annual. Um, that was not the main cause, something done during the annual. The air filter for the air that goes into the carburetor had been mounted in reverse. The filter goes into a little wire bracket, if you will, and on the other side it has a mesh, like a cloth mesh. The wire is supposed to be on the carburetor on the downstream side to hold that filter in. It had been mounted in reverse, and thus that fabric, I think, mesh was, which is very thin, subjected to all that suction force. The airplane had flown like this for, I believe, over, 100, over 250 tack hours. Wow. It happened during the engine overhaul a year and a half plus prior. Six people missed it, three AMPs and three IAs, which makes it all the more incredible because this could have happened at any moment, any time, any phase of flight. And for some reason, it happened right there at about 500 AGL. So the air filter got sucked into the carburetor. Of course, it chokes the engine, it floods with fuel, and it shuts down. That sounds like a pretty harrowing experience. How did your instrument student take that as far as lessons learned? He was also suspiciously cool just like the first guy. I remember rolling off the runway, calling for a tow on my handheld, because I had shut everything down, like we trained for, right? All the master off and everything. And I hopped out of the airplane, and I screamed, and I cursed at it. And I wanted to kick it, but it's not my airplane. <laughs> so I refrained from doing that. And my friend, my student, was surprisingly okay. So just like the first guy, and both of these people gave as a reason we always knew you had it, right? Confidence in their instructor, which is a wonderful compliment, but I could have done without the reason for that compliment on both occasions. No, but that's, that speaks a lot. It sounds like you were calm. You had procedures that you had memorized and it just kicked in. You really didn't have time to think. In fact, you mentioned it several times, uh, the startle factor, and you were able to overcome that in both of these occasions, spring-loading yourself for what am I gonna do next? Uh, and you kind of had a plan in mind. So what's a takeaway for someone like me uh, or other AOPA members that they could um, learn from these two rather harrowing experiences? A couple of things. The official guidance from the FAA up to a couple of years ago when they changed it in a very minor way was do not attempt the impossible turn. It's called the impossible turn for a reason. There was an AC on some other topic and there is a little section in there that I found where they revise that and they say, well, maybe CFI should train students on the possibility and what to do, and, but it was very limited. I think it's kind of a no-brainer, but be ready, right? Okay. We brief these departure emergencies and procedures. We always brief engine out on the runway, we do this. Engine out in the air, we do this. If sufficient runway available, we land. We brief those before every takeoff, but I personally, over time, you brief them, but they're just like the rest of the checklist. You do it and you don't really think about it too much, which means that when it does happen, you may not be as ready. So be ready at any time. I now, and I probably will for the foreseeable future, also because there is a little bit of anxiety, right? I, I, I'm a little tense still until 500 feet, depending on the aircraft, and a bonanza at 500 feet won't help you, but I'm a little tense until I reach that altitude and I say to myself, I've I've demonstrated it twice that it's possible. If the engine quits here, I'm going to turn back. 
Okay. I'm going to make the runway. Um, so be ready. Every foot, look outside. What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? What are my options? And also train for it. I'm now thinking about how can we in incorporate these procedures and experiences into training safely because I don't see a safe way to pull the power at 500 AGL, even if it's just demonstration, right? right? right. You're, to show you're, to a student, this is how you can do this. Yeah. I don't want to ever do that You again. can't do it in person uh, in an actual aircraft because the, the risks are just too high for that. The stakes yes. are too high. Yeah, and I've tried doing it. If you come into land and then you go around and you kind of simulate that you're at a specific location over the run, just past the runway, but at twice the altitude, kind of simulate it that way. Because then what you get, you can say, okay, so we're now at 1,000 feet AGL or 1,500, whatever you, you deem necessary for safe operation. But we're at the same geographical location where this might happen at a much lower altitude. We're going to turn back to the airport. And if you're at 1,500 feet, at 1,000 feet is your runway, is the ground. And let's see if you make it. Where you are at 1,000 feet? Where in space? That's a way to, to do it, I think. And I've demonstrated on a, on a couple of occasions to some, uh, some primary students. And they were they learned a thing or two, I think. Yeah. Right. So that's a way to do it, I think. And other takeaways, if if there is a way to train for it, get rid of that startle factor as much as you can. That's what saved me in both cases, which is I think good training, recency, currency, right? Going up with a CFI doesn't only have to happen when you're in pursuit of a rating or a certificate or or, or review or BFR, right? I personally approach my flight reviews not just as, oh, we're gonna run through the ACS maneuvers, whatever certificate you hold, and that's it. No, I like to challenge people, and I like to find the edge of their capabilities, and hopefully find a bunch of stuff that they don't know about, they haven't experienced, or don't have enough, or not much training in. So I think the flight review is one great example of where CFIs and students could think together about how to incorporate these, these events in, in, in training. So. You, you don't have to be pursuing something big. You can just go up with a CFI for currency. It doesn't have to be for your BFR. If you haven't flown in two months or you want to learn something new, find your local CFI, be it a friend or not, and go up and fly with them. You'll always learn something, I think. Both of these uh, incidents that you were describing happened at, uh, occurred at airports, if I'm not mistaken, are just single runway airports. Correct. Well, if you have a cross runway, now you have another option because you don't have to go, you don't have to land at, at, you know, at the threshold of the runway you took off from. You don't have to land at the, the end of the runway you took off of. What if there's a cross runway? And do you need to, do you need to set that landing point at you know, a touchdown point at, at the beginning or the end, or should it just be anywhere? Well, it really should be anywhere where you can safely land and survive. I mean. I teach my, especially primary students, right, engine outs in the airport environment, and I tell them, put it on the runway. I don't care where. Of course, for training, we don't want to roll off the end, right? You want to preserve the aircraft, and it's part of the instructor's job to do that, but anywhere on the runway is okay. What about a taxiway? Also, yeah, taxiway. I don't do that in training, right? right? Not intentionally, anyway. Taxiways, grass. When you have an emergency, any emergency, really, no matter how severe, an engine out, that regime of flight is obviously one of the most severe or high urgency ones, all the rules go out the window. And in my case, on that second engine out, the rules of flying kind of went out the window for me. Because had I, I was talking to my friend and, and student, the owner of the Warrior about this, and he said, 
if I had been by myself, I probably would have been dead, first of all. And I would not have done what you did. Because he said, I, I'm, I'm not past the point in training and experience where it's like, okay, pitch for best glide, right? Start a gentle turn. By the time you've done that, including the startle factory, you're in the trees. So all the rules about pitch for best glide, gentle turn, don't turn too steep, go out the window. And just like the flying rules go out the window in an emergency like that, all the legal rules do too. So if you have a cross runway or a taxiway or you're at a towered airport, it's really convincing yourself in any urgency situation, do whatever you need to do. And if there is paperwork later, who cares? There you go. Uh, final thought. So uh, you're doing your run-up. You're getting ready to take the active runway. Is there anything that you think about differently now? Or is there something in your mind that you do to prepare you for a potential engine out? Uh, we talked a little bit about normal training. You're supposed to think about it. But do you, Toto, now take an extra second or two to analyze what the situation might be? I do. The interesting thing, there was nothing that happened during each of these two engine outs that make, makes me now specifically pay more attention, right? If, if a mag had failed or, or both or whatever, um, I probably would pay a lot more attention than I do now even to, to those checks because the run-ups were normal. There was absolutely no indication okay. of anything. The first aircraft swallowed a valve, which is what ended up happening, making almost no power as a result of it. But yes, I do pay a little more close attention to the parameters that we look at. And I've grown a little less comfortable with, with airplanes without an engine monitor, for example. Now again, in both of these cases, our mechanics said there's nothing you could have seen, nothing you could have, have sensed. But if there is something that you can detect, an engine monitor will do a better job than just an oil pressure and a temperature gauge. Because uh, again, everything was normal. So, and then the, the, the pre-takeoff briefing, the emergency briefing, became extra important for me. And definitely, I put more emphasis on that now. Also, when I'm by myself, I look at the, I look at the airport environment on fourth flight. Right? We have all these great 3D features yeah. and stuff. I look at that. I actually actively plan, where do I go at 200 feet, 400 feet, 600 feet, 800 feet? Because, like I said, when I came home after the first one, I told my wife, well, this will statistically never happen again. Yeah. And then it did, and you can imagine the toll it took on her also. Oh, yeah. When she said, what the hell, I trusted you. This would never happen again, <laughs> right? So hopefully it was the last one. David, I think all of us, knock on wood, hope to never have an engine failure at low altitude like Toto did. Right. That's especially right. true. Yeah, that's scary time. And as Toto said, if you have an emergency, don't hesitate to declare an emergency. There's a little bit of paperwork to take care of, but in the long run, people are going to know where you are. They'll be able to get to you quicker. They'll know the details. So uh, one of the key takeaways was if you have an emergency, declare an emergency. Don't hesitate. Yeah, absolutely. Good advice. All right. That's all the time we have. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk. 
from AOPA, your freedom to fly.